Hello, I'm Cassie Gillespie, and you're listening to Welcome to the Field, a podcast for child welfare workers, caregivers, and community partners. Today, my colleague Pete Cudney and I will be talking with Dr. Michael Cull about safety culture and child welfare. Just like in aviation and the nuclear industry, child welfare is a safety-critical industry and high-stakes, high-consequence decisions are made every day by child welfare workers and caregivers. In this episode, we'll talk with Mike about his work adapting safety culture, a strategy used in other safety-critical industries, to child welfare systems in general, and the Vermont child welfare system in particular. And if you're wondering, Mike is an associate professor of health management and policy in the College of Public Health at the University of Kentucky. He is also an associate director in the Center for Innovation in Population Health. Mike's work focuses on quality improvement and system reform efforts in child welfare jurisdictions. He has specific expertise in applying safety science to improve safety, reliability, and effectiveness in organizations. His approach leverages tools like organizational assessment and systems analysis of critical incidents, including child deaths and near deaths. He uses these to build team culture and help systems learn to get better. He's also just a phenomenal person, and I'm so excited he was able to join us. Okay, here we go. So hello, Pete. Hi, Cassie. And welcome, Mike. Hi, Cassie. How are you? We're good. Thanks for coming today. Excellent. Thanks, Cassie. Um, Mike, so um, maybe just diving right in, um, could you just start by kind of talking with us about what is what is safety culture really in general? Sure. Um, so safety culture is a type of organizational culture. It could even be a, a subculture within a larger uh, organizational culture that might have, you know, you can imagine a number of different subcultures. And uh, so it's a, a type of organizational culture that we see in uh, what we call safety critical settings or safety critical industries, places like aviation, healthcare, the deck of an aircraft carrier, those kinds of places where you uh, need to be able to maintain consistently reliable, safe operations over long periods of time. Because when things go wrong, they go really wrong and bad things happen, like airplanes crash or patients die. So um, we have a long history now of, of looking at this particular type of culture and understanding what uh, it means to sort of be a safety culture. And so just maybe taking a step back, you know, organizational culture is, um, it's about our habits and how we solve problems in our organizations. Um, you might say it's kind of like just how we do things around here or uh, another uh, kind of quick definition that I've always liked is it's what we tolerate. So it, it's mm. um, not an abstract idea. It's something we can measure and it's something we can shape and change with some very specific strategies. So uh, safety culture in particular um, is a kind of organizational culture that sort of acknowledges that the work is high risk and that humans within these complex settings are fallible. And so you need to direct resources at um, sort of helping them to make right decisions and helping them to make safe decisions. Um, there's some very specific strategies that I know we'll get to that you can um, put into the workforce and into the setting to kind of provide some structure while you're building those habits. And again, habits are what form our cultures. Um, it's really collaborative. So you, you the places that I, I noted, like uh, aircraft carriers and operating rooms and aviation. And so it's very collaborative. It's really central to creating a safety culture is creating an environment that's um, blame-free, that's mm. uh, what we call psychologically safe. That is, people in the environment feel 
um, accepted, respected, part of a team, and they feel like they can speak up um, and identify problems in their system, talk about mistakes as opportunities to learn and improve and not as opportunities to uh, reprimand and punish. Great. So those are some of the traits of kind of safety culture in general as it's applied to many safety critical industries. Tell us what's unique about applying safety culture to child welfare. So this is a 10-year-long journey now where I got my experience in, in what it means to kind of create or advance a safety culture in an organization working in healthcare. And so this is kind of applying a healthcare frame to a child welfare setting. And so it, it's been a different sort of approach. Um, we talk a lot about systems thinking and uh, applying a systems approach to understanding problem solving in your organization. So again, mm-hmm. organizational culture is about habits and how we solve problems. So we have to bring kind of a systems lens. When you think about a system like an airplane or an operating room, the component parts are that of that system uh, and they, how they interact. A lot of it, you know, it's engineering and math and those kinds of things. And only a little piece of it might be how people interact with those components. But our system is made up almost entirely of people. Um, yeah. So when we're talking about how do we create safety, it's almost exclusively about how people interact with one another. So some of the strategies fit really nicely in our context, and some are a little bit of a challenge. You know, one strategy for creating safety in, for example, an operating room would be creating what they call hard stops. So just literally engineering the operating room so that uh, humans can't make the kind of mistakes that they're prone to make when they're doing fast-paced, high-pressure kind of work. So you might... Uh, it used to be the case that oxygen tubing and anesthesia tubing was exactly the same size. And so an oxygen tubing could fit onto the anesthesia port, which if you're a patient that needs oxygen, that would, of course, be a really bad outcome. And so they created a hard stop. Now the tubing's a different size and the ports are a different size. So those kinds of things get baked into the work of kind of engineering a safe environment. And we don't have a lot of those opportunities in child welfare. Again, most of our component parts are people. And so all of the strategies we're bringing into this work really uh, almost exclusively focus on how people communicate with one another. Mm. Mike, some of what, when we've, when we've talked about this before, some of what I've really appreciated um, about this way of thinking is that it positions child welfare, child protection services alongside other industries, like you've mentioned, that are incredibly complex, sophisticated, really require uh, high levels of professionalism. Um, and, and I think it's just so validating um, for people in the field, this idea that the work that they do is is critical, that the reliable outcomes being safe is critical, and that it's way too complicated um, to do it in isolation, and that therefore you need to work um, in in teams. And, and I'm, I'm just wondering if you could just talk a little bit more about that, because I think it, it really does honor uh, the people doing the work in, in a particular way. Yeah, honestly, that was the sort of the, 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 the moment that we had um, the folks I was doing work with at, at Vanderbilt, where we said, you know, this stuff might apply in child welfare. And it was really this recognition that, you know, like pilots and surgeons and, and nurses, uh, um, our child welfare professionals are making high-risk, high-consequence decisions all day long, and they just might benefit from some of these same approaches. And so, one of the, I'll back up a little too to, to Cassie's question. One of the, the also the differences in thinking about applying this in child welfare and uh, applying it in some of those settings is the workforce that we have. We don't largely have a pre-professionally trained workforce that we pull from in child welfare. I think nationally, about 35% of all child welfare professionals actually have a social work degree. 
And so we're hiring folks who want to come do the work, but might have a variety of different backgrounds in terms of their, their you know, educational preparation. So, you know, we train them to do the work and then we hopefully support them in the work throughout their career. So that makes for a really different approach when you don't have a pool of professional folks, you know, professional mean, uh, being associated with some license, like a nurse or a doctor, right. um, but they might come from different backgrounds and we have to prepare them up to all work at the same level. So I think that makes it a, a different kind of challenge when you think about applying this in a child welfare context. Absolutely. It seems to um, mean that the the agencies, the organization itself really needs to bear a certain, I mean, a pretty significant responsibility um, in designing with with safety in mind. Yeah, for sure. You know, this is um, this is an approach that, you know, is not wholly bottom up. It's not an approach where you go in and kind of get the workforce uh, excited about it and sort of build it from the ground up. It's a top-down sort of leadership has to buy in approach because they have to create that sort of blame-free environment where people feel safe speaking up and pointing out things in their system that need to be improved. That has to get buy-in at the top level or you're kind of putting people at risk for stepping out on a limb and then getting that limb cut out from under them. And so what we see in some other organizations, um, I think Vermont's doing a great job of this, is really putting a focus on creating a safe, engaged workforce that has the tools they need to do the job. It's an essential component of creating this kind of culture that we're talking about. And so I know you work, um, you're leading, I guess that's probably the term, a partnership of many states right now who are trying to implement child welfare, a safety culture approach into child welfare settings. Where does Vermont stack up in the partnership? Like there's some stuff we're doing that's unique, but I imagine there's lots of stuff that you're seeing happening nationally along these lines. Yeah, it's been a really exciting thing to be a part of. Um, we're uh, supporting a national quality improvement collaborative. It's currently 24 child welfare jurisdictions are participating. Vermont was one of the initial cohort of eight, and that was in 2019 that we sort of launched in earnest. So just in that short period of time since then, we've grown to 24 jurisdictions. Wow. Um I'll keep circling back kind of to, to my definition of culture, but the, this idea that, you know, culture lives in the way you solve problems. We anchor the collaborative, like um, quality improvement collaborative seen in other industries, to sharing data around um, safety kind of critical events and typically low base rate events. So an example in healthcare would be a national collaborative of operating rooms where they come together and share into a national data set low base rate events that occur in the operating room that in a given hospital, it doesn't happen a lot, but shared across a lot of hospitals, there's a, this great opportunity for learning. So it would be things like uh, what's called retained foreign bodies. So, uh, you know, a sponge or an instrument uh, sadly getting left in a patient or a uh, wrong side surgery, those kinds of events that don't happen very often, but it's a big deal when they do. So we're anchoring this national collaborative to uh, reviews of fatalities, near fatalities, and other critical incidents in the child welfare system. And so we're doing that in a way that we're helping the jurisdictions take a systems approach to viewing these incidents in their system and maybe first and foremost creating a safe space to think about these things. Because these, you know, when one of our professionals has a kid unfortunately die or, or you know, have some significant event happen, you know, it's oftentimes the worst day of that professional's career. And so we build this approach that's supportive. Uh, it's non-punitive and it's about viewing those professionals that are doing the work as an asset in our system and uh, not as the problem themselves. So it takes a really specific sort of approach to reviewing critical incidents. 
And then, as I said, uh, we standardize the output from those reviews and we're sharing those reviews uh, into a data set nationally. Um, Vermont, there's there's other pieces then to the collaborative, which are more related to doing measurement of your organizational culture using what's called a safety culture survey. And so that's a survey that measures values, behaviors, beliefs of your workforce with respect to creating a safe, effective, reliable delivery system. So it measures things like psychological safety and burnout. This idea of mindful organizing, which is a teamwork construct, it's about how teams uh, work together, innovate, uh, seek out new solutions. And then from that, helping these child welfare jurisdictions do some work with their teams using some really specific strategies that we pull from places like aviation and healthcare. So it's things like using huddles before critical decisions are made or using debriefs after things don't go the way we want them to go. And so Vermont, um, Cassie, you asked how they stack up. One, Vermont was one of the very first jurisdictions that got excited about this and got involved. And, And then two, Vermont has really leaned into the organizational assessment piece really understanding, you know, taking kind of a temperature of their uh, workforce and then implementing some of those team-based strategies and huddles in particular, I know, has really taken hold as a strategy for helping teams come together and um, in a collaborative way plan for, you know, some kind of really critical decision like um, a, a removal. Great. One of the things that I know we're working on here is we're early enough still in our implementation that we focus predominantly on the workforce implementation through both leadership and you know direct service workers. But a huge part of our system, the real unsung heroes, are the caregivers for kiddos, you know, foster parents or kin caregivers as well. And so I'm wondering if any of the jurisdictions that you're working with are doing interesting things, pulling caregivers into safety culture, or even if you just have thoughts about how a safety culture might impact caregivers differently from workforce? Yeah, I don't know if any of our jurisdictions have done anything sort of formal with caregivers, with foster parents specifically. We do have one jurisdiction uh, working on you know, what you'd call milieu staff in their congregate care settings, so group homes and residential care. They're spreading this model into those settings with our help. And so that's really exciting Especially when you think about the idea that this is borrowed from healthcare, it's, it's kind of much easier to think about how to translate something that happens on a nursing unit into residential care, for example, because the settings are so similar. Mm. So we do have a jurisdiction that's engaged in that. But yeah, I'm really excited to think about how we extend this out to our foster parents, you know, when we get more mature in our thinking about this, because it really... You know, sadly, I just read a report uh, from an ombudsman out of one of the jurisdictions that, you know, they get reports from foster parents and they describe kind of a culture of fear that something like 90% of all the reports they get from foster parents have some element of they fear reprisal from the system if they complain. And so you need, uh, just like you need team members inside your system to feel psychologically safe, to be able to speak up and provide candid feedback. We need our foster parents letting us know when they are worried about something going wrong. We need them to feel safe that they can speak up and talk about problems, even talk about mistakes they made, um, because we don't want other foster parents making those same mistakes. So I, I think it's it's a natural extension of the work we're doing. And in fact, I don't know that we can fully accomplish the kind of change we want without extending it out into our foster homes. Oh, I think that's a really good point, Mike. And I don't I don't want to oversimplify something as complicated as this, and maybe this risks doing that. But um, one theme that seems to keep coming up again and again is this idea of psychological safety, the idea that it's important that the culture not just even feel safe, but almost feel encouraging and inviting 
of all voices um, and especially any voices where they have concerns about whether we're adequately uh, meeting a child's needs or, or providing for safety. And so I'm, I'm wondering, you know, whether or not that's central. I'm, I'm just wondering about what have you learned are the key components to driving that kind of culture change? I mean, you've talked a little bit about, cert, you know, measuring, surveying. You've talked about uh, paying attention to key critical incidents, the importance of leadership. Are, are there other pieces that you would want to name that are important in, in driving culture change? Yeah, I think, you know, I think you asked, is, is psychological safety sort of central to this work? And it is actually just the sort of bedrock kind of condition you need to create in your environment to, to accomplish this. Like without it, you just really can't accomplish anything. So again, psychological safety is this idea that I feel accepted, respected. I'm part of a team. I, I can speak up and take interpersonal risks. We don't treat mistakes as opportunities to punish, but rather opportunities to learn. And so Amy Edmondson did the early work on this at Harvard, looking in the Harvard healthcare system. And she was specifically tasked at the time to go and look at error reporting in nursing units and how that was correlated with outcomes, patient outcomes. And so the assumption going in obviously was the number of errors you saw on a nursing unit would predict worse outcomes, right? So more reporting would equal worse patient outcomes because they were um, making more mistakes on their right, nursing right. unit. And what she actually found was the inverse. Um, units that had higher levels of reporting actually had better outcomes with patients. And so that was kind of a confounded everyone on the research team. And they went in and did a much deeper dive into each of these units to figure out what, you know, what's going on with this. And and what they named in the literature at that time was this idea of psychological safety, that those units that felt safe talking about mistakes also were more likely to report those mistakes. So it wasn't that mistakes weren't happening in high numbers on the other units. It's just that they weren't reporting them because they didn't feel safe enough to. And so that early research has just really mushroomed into not just through rippling through healthcare, but through other industries as well. And aviation uh, has known this for a long time. If you're in a situation where the you know the co-pilot doesn't feel safe speaking up and challenging the pilot, uh, that plane's just not as safe. There were a number of high-profile Korean Air crashes that they determined that to be one of the you know sort of root causes of those events. So. We know people have to be able to have this thing that we call psychological safety. And, and importantly, Pete, it's not psychological comfort. Like mm. being psychologically safe isn't always easy or comfortable because it means you do have to speak up and in a candid way challenge your colleagues. But that's an essential tool in a professional workplace. You know, you have to feel safe to do that. Yeah. Google actually just went through a big five-year study where they were sort of trying to identify what makes a team in the Google environment most effective. And I think they probably went into it thinking, you know, when they came out the other side, they'd be able to say something like, yeah, we need one MBA and two data scientists and <laughs> right. a couple of, you know, software engineers or whatever. But um, what they found was psychological safety was the strongest predictor of outcomes in the Google environment. Could our teams speak up, talk about mistakes, fail without fear of reprimand, um, those kinds of qualities. Yeah. And, and are there times where it's helpful if there are leaders who are trying to push this kind of change in an organization are there times where there's resistance that this is just kind of taking care of staff? Do you need to help make the connection at times that it's in service of the safe outcomes for children? Do people miss that connection at times? We often have to come back to that. I think yeah. it's, you know, it's, it's not always and it's less and less. What I've been most taken by, I think, as we've done this in child welfare is how quickly child welfare leaders 
many of them are, um, again, we're, we've grown to 24 jurisdictions so quickly. They, yeah. It's almost like we've given them a language uh, of, yeah. for something they've been thinking about all along. You know, this is how people generally would want to run their organizations. And, you know, we'll hear from people a lot, too, about this idea of a parallel process. So this is kind of a, about treating your colleagues and your your workforce in the same way that we'd expect them to work with families. And so it's really natural kind of for, I think, folks in child welfare to think about the importance of meeting people where they are and creating a safe space for them to be able to talk and those kinds of things. But it is important. It's um, definitely the case that we frequently have to come back to that this is about creating a safe, effective, reliable workforce. And these are some of the critical things you need to do to create that. And so being effective and reliable in child welfare means getting good outcomes with your families and keeping kids safe. You know, in these other industries we talk about, places like aviation and healthcare, they now have decades of, you know, research supporting this approach. So there's a good literature base in all of those places that we're borrowing from, but we're having to kind of, you know, make some assumptions about how it will work in child welfare. So we are also, and you know this well because we're engaged with your team at the university (laughs) on some papers right now, but we're taking on the responsibility, I think, of building the evidence base in child welfare. So we have a number of folks at universities around the country now that um, are partnering with child welfare, their child welfare systems like Vanderbilt in Nashville and and Northwestern in Illinois and working to, um, and you guys in Vermont, and working to build the evidence for this. So we know from the organizational assessment data that there are a number of important relationships that play out in organizations that we can work on to improve. So we know, for example, when we see teams that are more psychologically safe, we see less burnout and we see less um, turnover. So those are really important workforce level outcomes that gives us some evidence for why we need to build these teams in the way that we're building them. But we also are starting to do some work to link these things to job level outcomes. Uh, so, so our, our uh, colleague Richard Epstein at Northwestern is doing some really cool work trying to link the practice of mindful organizing, that team-based construct that is sort of about planning forward and reflecting back and being resilient as a team and innovating together as a team, connecting that practice as we measure it with our survey tools to some child-level outcomes like repeat maltreatment and length of stay and even parent-child visits. So. There's some really exciting work going on, and, and this big collaborative uh, gives us an opportunity to really have access to a, a lot of really good data. I think that is so exciting because I feel like the the kind of narrative has long been, you know, that you can attend to your workforce and their burnout and their workload, or you can get the work done, you know, and it just really seems like safety culture is debunking that, essentially, that the way to have the most effective and transformative work is to attend to your workforce and the systems. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, We've got a couple of jurisdictions that are doing some neat things from a um, strategy perspective. You know, so this is about culture, and we, we you've seen my talks where I always put a slide up that talks about um, culture eating strategy for lunch, and I, and I do believe that's true. So strategies are our best intentions. It's what we plan to do. It's what we draw up, and then we introduce it to our culture, and um, and you know who knows what's going to happen. But you need strategies too, right? So uh, Los Angeles County, for example, has a public-facing strategic plan called Invest LA, where they have put right in the middle of their sort of pillar metaphor, you know, they have five pillars that support the strategic plan, creating a, a, you know, a safety culture and how it addresses, you know, a safe and engaged workforce. So they've really, you know, creating it in that way, putting it in a, in a document like that, one creates kind of an organizational artifact that can be a touchstone for the work, but it also creates accountability, um, public accountability, because again, this is their public facing plan and accountability internally, because 
each of those pillars will have, you know, a senior leader responsible for some metrics to be able to demonstrate that they're achieving their goals. So I, I, to your point, Cassie, you know, putting your workforce in a plan like that and making their safety a part of it is really forward thinking. And I'm, I'm excited about that work. So are we. It's so cool. Yeah. So a question I have, I, we've talked around this, but I really want to get clear on it is from the perspective of someone who's working in the system, like a your average child welfare worker holding a caseload, how would their role, their job or their, their organization look different um, when safety culture is implemented? Well, I think you use a different set of tools, I think, and strategies. You know, this isn't, none of the things that we bring to the work is sort of at the level of a new practice model. You know, like most travel for systems have some form of practice model that creates the contours of the work. And it's really more about the blocking and tackling of working in a team. So again, it's using things like huddles and debriefs and, you know, barred from aviation. Where are places we can use checklists to help us make sure that we just cover everything? Mm -hmm. How can we use tools that help us structure the way we communicate with one another so that we get the desired outcome in that two-way process of communicating? So I, I think it's some of the strategies would change. I think for child welfare in particular, because again, we're borrowing from places where work is very collaborative and team-based and we're putting it into a place where sometimes it can be very isolated. Sometimes in child welfare, it's uh, um, a child welfare professional out there engaging with a family on their own and they may have some structure for touching base with a supervisor or or some kind of informal way of, of getting support from their peers. But we don't often think about child welfare work from the perspective of like a team coming together to make decisions about work, unless it's a child and family team kind of model, but that's a different kind of teaming that I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, so it might look different in that we're using some different strategies. We're thinking differently about collaborative work. And then, you know, you have to bring a new lens to the work. It's I, I oftentimes talk about it being akin to becoming trauma-informed, like when, when we kind of went through that process mm-hmm. as, as organizations of com- becoming trauma-informed. Becoming trauma-informed is um, is as much about just changing your paradigm as it is about anything else. It's nice for you to understand the brain science. It's nice maybe for you to understand the details or have some sense of, you know, things like trauma-focused CBT and how they work. But really, it's about just changing your lens. It's about understanding that, you know, that externalizing 13-year-old who's blowing up their placement and has a trauma history needs to be thought of a little bit differently. And so this is about bringing new lens to the work. It's about understanding things like, you know, the cognitive biases that all humans have that affect the way we make decisions and uh, that all systems and all people are fallible. It's about when you're asking questions, asking different questions. It's about, you know, thinking about the what and the how of decision-making and not the who and the why. So not going and trying to find out who did what and why they do it, but what did they do and how did they do it and what, what were the thought processes behind it so we can really fully understand how to make it better next time. So much of it is about just changing your lens, having a different paradigm. I appreciate that, Mike. And I mean, as you know, we're, we're pretty excited about this in Vermont, too. And I just want to reflect back two pieces that, that you just said, and they resonate with my experience. And one is that I think, you know, being trauma informed and developing a safety culture, I think are really, really similarly connected. You know, I think there's an, an awareness of the impact of secondary traumatic stress on the workforce and how that affects decision making within safety culture. And a trauma-informed approach, you know, acknowledges that we're human and that secondary traumatic stress really does physiologically affect people. So um, I appreciate that you you drew that parallel. I've also really appreciated that something as seemingly um, abstract as culture 
can really be affected at the team level with simple strategies. I mean, that's really been our experience so far in Vermont is that these uh, mindful organizing team level approaches um, are really a, a pretty concrete way to start moving this work forward and, and change your culture um, in the process. Um, if if there are people listening to our podcast who for whom safety culture is new and they were curious about this and wanted more information, are there places that you would point them to get more information? Like what would you suggest as a, as a starting place? You know, I think uh, if, you, if you want it specific to, to child welfare, we have some resources on the Prague Foundation website. So I'm at the University of Kentucky but I also, uh, part of our work is also with the Prey Foundation that supports a lot of work in child welfare and public sector mental health around the country. So there is a spot on that. It's, you know, www.praefoundation.org that has some resources that are specific to the work we're doing in child welfare systems. Um, Casey Family Programs, you would have to do some searching, but they have a number of resources and some briefs they've recently developed about the work we're doing in child welfare. But if you really want a lot of really good information about this, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement is an awesome resource for this kind of work. And so it's just IHI.org. Um, and uh, you could go there and set up a little free account and have just tons and tons of resources available to you there. Great. We can put those up on our show notes with this episode. Yeah. Pete, I'd like to go back to um, something you were mentioning about, you know, this parallel between becoming trauma-informed and, and how trauma plays out in our system. And, yeah. um, you know, what we've really... Um, learned through doing this work and doing the kind of that organizational assessment that we do. And we've done a lot of great work in child welfare around secondary trauma and understanding it and understanding its impact. Um, what we've maybe not been as good at is understanding how to keep folks from, you know, kind of suffering from the exposure. How can we build in some protective stuff? One. Yes. And two, understanding that, you know, it's one influence from our work, but there's a lot of crappy stuff that goes on in child welfare systems that impacts the way our, our professionals do their work. And so we know, you know, we measure it all across the country now. We know that burnout is in the high 40% in child welfare, and that's consistent with other helping professions like doctors and nurses. So burnout is really high just by virtue of doing the work at really high risk for burnout. We know that, as I mentioned, you, you know, we all bring cognitive biases to our work that affect the way we make decisions, and that gets mixed in there with the effects of trauma exposure and burnout. And then I think less well understood in child welfare is the role of fatigue. Our, our professionals in a lot of systems, and I apologize, I can't remember exactly how Vermont's structured, but they might get called out on an investigation that keeps mm -hmm. them out you know, late into the night. And then it's oftentimes the case they're kind of, a, if not by policy, they're sort of culturally expected to be available to cover their case the next day, because if they're not there, somebody else will have to cover it. And so, you know, we work long hours, um, even if we're not out overnight. So I think fatigue is another one that, you know, really is not well understood in child welfare and, and the impact it has on our workforce, unlike other safety critical settings where a pilot can't just fly as long as they want to. They effectively have a pitch count where after a certain number of hours, they're pulled from an airplane and surgeons can't just do as many operations as they want to do in a row. They control that. So other industries that make these high risk, high consequence decisions like we do have a better understanding, I think, of um, the role of fatigue on decision-making and then we have been able to understand in child welfare. Mm, yeah. Thank you. Mike, that was amazing. We are about out of time. Um, is there anything else you want to leave us with before we wrap up? Uh, I just, I really appreciate the opportunity. This is um, always 
super fun to talk about. I love working with Vermont. It's a system that has really leaned into this at, at all levels. And you guys, Cassie and Pete, have been such a great academic partner to the state. It's um, it's really been a fun place for us to, to try this out. And I think we're having some real success and getting it implemented. Well, likewise, Mike, right, right back at you. Yeah, we're really enthusiastic as well. A hundred percent. Yeah. Really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us about this, too. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Welcome to the Field is produced by the Vermont Child Welfare Training Partnership and the state of Vermont. Our music is composed and performed by local band Brick Drop. And our sound production and engineering has been brought to you by Esmond Communications and Egan Media Productions. For Welcome to the Field, I'm Cassie Gillespie, and we'll see you next time.